The following recording is from Parramatta Christian Church. We pray that this message inspires you in your walk with Christ. Good morning, PC. It's great to be together. Before we actually come to our passage and before we continue our current sermon series, I Am God, I want to ask you a question. I want us to reflect on a question as we sit at home. And the question is this. Are we eager to engage with the Holy Spirit as we come to God's Word today? That's the question. You see, no doubt we all know the familiar, famous verse found in the book of Isaiah, which says that God's word will not return to him empty-handed. It won't return to him void. And of course, ultimately and wonderfully, that is true. But this doesn't mean that at a personal level, God's word always accomplishes great things in our individual lives. No, for that to happen, we need to come to God's word a certain way. We need to come to God's word the way Jeremiah the prophet came to God's word. In Jeremiah 15 verse 16, this is what Jeremiah says. He says, your words came and, listen to what he says, ate them. I ate them. That is, he feasted on the word of God. He had a certain spiritual posture. And then he goes on to say, Your words were my joy. They were my heart's delight. Now, of course, if this is our posture today, like Jeremiah's, then God's word will accomplish great things. When essentially we come to God saying, I cannot live on bread alone, but I need every wise, I need every powerful, I need every gracious word that flows from your mouth. If this is how we are today as we come to God's word, then of course we're going to be strengthened. Of course we're going to be inspired. God's word is going to do a deep transformative work in our lives and so this is my prayer for all of us that we will have this spiritual posture as we come to God's word that we really would engage with the wonder of the Holy Spirit this morning so if you've got your Bible close at hand please reach it and find John's gospel as we continue our current series and once you found John turn to John chapter 11 and locate this passage verses 21 to 27 as you're finding the passage just a brief backstory as to what's happening in the background and the context here Jesus has deliberately delayed coming to help his good friend Lazarus Lazarus has died. He died four days earlier. And so after four days, Jesus finally rocks up at Bethany, which is Lazarus' hometown. And upon arriving, Lazarus' sister, one of his sisters, Martha, known for her busyness, she's very energetic, she immediately gets up and runs out to meet Jesus, who is on the edge of the city. When she arrives, well, this is what she says. In verse 21. So this is where we join the story in verse 21. And also this is where we arrive at Jesus' fifth I am declaration, which is I am. Let's come to the passage to find out. Verse 21. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I think that's a mild rebuke, verse 22. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Now, at this stage, I don't think Martha is believing that Jesus is going to resurrect Lazarus. I think she's got faith for something, but I don't think it's resurrection, as we're going to see in this message. Verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And then here comes our Fifth, I am declaration. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. 
The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Verse 27. Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And then Jesus has a brief conversation with the other sister, Mary, and then he weeps. He has tears streaming down his face as he arrives at the tomb side of Lazarus. And then he raises Lazarus back to life again. So before we come to this message, how about I say a quick prayer, then we'll jump in. Father, thank you for this incredible statement, the I am the resurrection and the life declaration. Thank you for your word. Thank you for those sitting at home, Lord, your people at PCC. Also those who are joining us for the first time or they've been journeying with us in this particular format, our online services. Lord, I pray your blessing to be upon all your people as we come around your living word. I pray that you would find us eager and ready to receive your truth today. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we actually come to the passage, before we interact with what's going on here, I want to address the elephant in the room of Christianity. What is the elephant in the room of Christianity? Well, I believe it's the very thing that Jesus claims here for himself. What does he say? He says, I am the what? The resurrection. You see, the resurrection, the literal, actual, bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead is a major source of skepticism and unbelief in the world. A lot of people don't buy it. They don't believe in it. They think that it's nothing more than a fairy tale. For example, Richard Dawkins, no doubt you know who he is, he's a household name, he was having a debate with a guy called John Lennox a number of years ago. John Lennox is the professor of mathematics at Oxford University. He's also a follower of Christ. And during the debate, which was really quite respectful and cordial, John Lennox said that he believed in the resurrection of Christ. Well, at that, Richard Dawkins said this in response. This is his quote. The resurrection of Jesus. It's so petty. It's so trivial. It's like, tell us what you really think, Richard. It's so local. It's so earthbound. It's so unworthy of the universe, unquote. Now, clearly, for Richard Dawkins and others, new atheists, atheists, the resurrection of Jesus is an elephant that needs to be Shot. It needs to be put down. You see, if Dawkins is right that the resurrection of Christ is nothing but a fairy tale, just a complete load of nonsense, then listen, church, Christianity is a house of cards. Because from the very beginning, Christians have proclaimed a resurrected Christ and that through his resurrection... He has conquered death, he has conquered sin, he has conquered hell. But of course, if Jesus is still in the ground somewhere, if his body and bones is somewhere, then of course Christianity is fraudulent, as Paul the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, which is the great resurrection chapter in the Bible. He says, if Jesus is not alive, then your faith is not alive. You are dead still in your sin. You are proved to be a false witness, because we believe and have proclaimed that Jesus is alive. And so the question on the table for us to think about just for a bit is this is the resurrection real did it really happen in other words is it an elephant that needs to be shot or not of course as a pastor most of you know what I'm going to say I'm going to say no 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 there is good evidence 
to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm pleading with some of you because I know maybe some of you are strictly materialistic. You think that there's nothing more in the cosmos than what we can see. But if you give in to that, of course, no amount of evidence is ever going to convince you concerning the resurrection. But, but let me plead with you just to be open to the possibility that miracles can happen, because if you believe that miracles can happen, then the resurrection, the literal body, bodily resurrection of Jesus is a well-attested fact, it's a well-attested historical reality. Now I say that for these three reasons. So what I'm about to do, I'm going to give you three pieces or three slices of evidence. Not extensive evidence here. If you want more extensive, thoroughgoing evidence, then call out to us, reach out to us, and we'd love to help you as a church, point you in the right direction. But for now, three pieces of evidence that I trust, if you're open, will be helpful. So here's the first piece of evidence. The empty tomb. Empty tomb. Historians believe categorically, non-Christian historians, Christian historians believe that the tomb was empty. And what they point out, these historians, is that without an empty tomb, Christianity could never have begun. Why? As I just said, Christians have always proclaimed a resurrected Christ. And if people wanted to discredit, a lot of people wanted to dismiss and reject and discredit Christianity in the first century, all they needed to do was present the body of Jesus. Ta-da, here it is. And Christianity would have been finished, kaput, immediately. But of course that never happened. In addition, there is no record of early Christians making Jesus' tomb a place of pilgrimage or devotion. You see, that was the practice. Religious observers at this time used to do that with their founders. When they died, they used to make their tombs shrines. Well, Christians never did this. So historians, as I said, Christian historians, non-Christian historians, see the empty tomb as a given. That's not where the debate lies. That's a given. Where the debate lies is what happened to the body that is now in this empty tomb. And so for that, we go to our second piece of evidence, which is the eyewitness accounts. The Apostle Paul is able to say in a public document 20 years after the event of the resurrection that there were 500 eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 500 all at once. And in addition, furthermore, he says some of these, in fact a lot of these eyewitnesses are still alive. And so he's saying, look, if you want to check their story out, the validity of their story, then, then you can do that. Just go and have a conversation with them and they'll tell you about their experience. You see, this rules out one prominent theory, and that is the hallucination theory. Some think that the early disciples hallucinated, you know, after maybe smoking some wacky-backy. <laughs> Jesus is alive, brother. Yeah, peace. He's alive. That can't happen en masse. 500 people simultaneously at the same time seeing Christ. That's a, not a hallucination. It sounds more like history. Furthermore, what's really interesting is the fact that each gospel records that it was women who were the first to see Jesus alive again. Women. Now, we need to remember something. Women's, in in the first century, the evidence of women was not accepted in court. And the reason was because of their low social standing. And so, really, if the apostles wanted to deceive the world, hey, let's say that Jesus is alive, steal the body, say that he's alive, well, they did a terrible job at it. They, they just messed it up. They balls it up because they, they, they said that women were the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection. 
early critics of Christianity pointed to this as the number one reason for why Christianity couldn't be true. They said, these hysterical females, that's what they said, these hysterical females, we, we can't believe that this is historical because of these females, they're just being hysterical. And so the only logical answer as to why women were said to have seen Jesus back from the dead is that that is what actually took place. The apostles are recording history. This is how it happened. The third piece of evidence, the impact of Jesus' resurrection on his early believers, on his followers. Despite the fact that many of Jesus' followers were few, they were poor, they were marginalised, they took the world by storm. You couldn't put them down. They continued to preach about Jesus and the resurrection, even in the face of hot hostility and opposition. In fact, a lot of them lost their lives telling the people in the crowd, Jesus is alive, Jesus is alive. And then their life ended. You see, one prominent theory is that the disciples stole the body. But again, this is ruled out because who knowingly dies for a hoax? For a hoax. You see, we've got to remember that at this time there were other messiahs, so-called messiahs. One guy, Bar Kokhba, he got a gathering and he taught and he preached. And yet when he died, when he was killed, guess what happened to his movement? It died with him. His followers disbanded, the movement fizzled out. The same would have happened to Christianity if Jesus really was dead and the disciples stole their body. It wouldn't have survived past the first century. I love what one writer says, one Japanese novelist, Shusaku Endo, he says, if we don't believe in the resurrection, we'll be forced to believe that what did hit the disciples was some other amazing event, different in kind, yet of equal force in its electrifying intensity. In effect, he's saying, if you don't really believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, then you're going to have to come up with some other explanation for why the church exploded. And your explanation may be even more unbelievable and incredible than the resurrection itself. And so for these three pieces of evidence, the empty tomb, the eyewitness accounts, the impact of Jesus' resurrection on his followers, Christians believe that the resurrection is not an elephant that needs to be put down or shot. No, no, no. But Jesus is really alive. That this is an event that happened in time and space, an event that needs to be received, an event that needs to be believed, an event that needs to be shared and proclaimed. And let me encourage you, if you're still on the fence investigate the evidence more thoroughly, more extensively, because there are great scholarly works that have been written on this particular subject, 900-page books on this theme, if you really want to look at it more extensively. If not, if you want something smaller, again, reach out to us, and we would love to help you. Jesus is alive. This is a good segue to come to the very heart of our message because as we reflect on Jesus' I am declaration here in verses 25 and 26, what I want to do, I want to summarize this statement in three key words. Three key words. Here's the first word. Unexpected. Unexpected. That is, Jesus' statement, I am the resurrection and the life, would have jolted Martha, would have even shocked her. Jesus is directing his words to her. He says to her, we we read in verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, why am I saying that these words would have been unexpected? Why am I saying that she would have been jolted? We see she was a Jew 
and she had an orthodox belief. She did believe in the literal resurrection, resurrection day, but you see she had what I'm calling a horizon hope. She looked at a distant, far-off future. This is why in verse 23 when Jesus says, do you believe your brother will rise? She says, yeah, of course I do, but at the end of the age, a horizon hope. And so when Jesus says, oh, hold on Martha, I am Messiah, I'm the Son of God, and I can restore your brother today. Your brother will rise, she's not thinking about the present reality. She's thinking about the distant reality. And so Jesus' words, I think, would have jolted her, would have shocked her. You see, we know this not only because of what we're told in verse 24, that she didn't really believe that Jesus was going to resurrect her brother, but also uh, because of what we notice in verse 39. Interestingly, Jesus comes to the tomb site. He's got tears streaming down his face. And then he says to those standing by, take away the stone. He's about to flex his resurrection power. He's about to flex his resurrection authority. And he's about to restore Lazarus and say, Lazarus, come out. When all of a sudden there's an interruption. Someone interrupts him. And who is that someone? Not Mary, but Martha. In verse 39, she says, but Lord... But Lord, there's going to be a, there's going to be an odor. He's been in there for days. And the church, her words were not words of faith. Not faith-filled, not believing that Christ was going to do a miracle. No, no, no. Her words were full of doubt and skepticism. They were words of fallen human logic. Now, there's a huge point of application for each of us here as we sit at home. And it's this. Sometimes, this is tragic, this is sad, but unfortunately it's a reality sometimes. We can fall into the Martha trap. We can even interrupt Jesus from working a miracle in our lives, through our lives, for us by being unbelieving, by giving in to fallen human logic. But, 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 Jesus, and we give Jesus all the excuses why he can't do a miracle. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, yes, in the future, but today I think Jesus wants to radically reshape our hope, of course. He wants us to have, like Martha, a horizon hope. But he also wants us to have a here hope, a today hope where we believe that the power of Christ can break into our current broken, difficult, complex situations and circumstances. And so, in effect, I just want to press pause on the sermon and pray. Let's pray believing. If you're at home and you have a health related issue or something happened to you recently or in the past that's still really painful or maybe you're believing for an unsafe friend or family member to come to faith in Christ or you're believing for your prodigal son or daughter to come back to the father or it's some financial situation because of the pandemic whatever it may be let us pray together believing Lord Jesus you are the resurrection and the life today And so I pray, Lord Jesus, that your power would be poured out, your grace would be poured out upon these various situations. Lord, 
poor health, ill health, some disease, some setback in the body. Lord, I pray for healing, physical healing. Lord, I pray, oh God, for this financial situation to be restored, Lord. I pray, Lord God, for that unsaved person to come to faith, Lord. I pray for the prodigal daughter, son, to return to the father. I pray, Lord God, for all these things in your name. Thank you, Lord. We're all at home saying, yes, help us, Lord God, not be like Martha, but help us be a bit like Mary, Lord, sitting at your feet, looking to you, saying, yes, yes, we believe, we believe that you're going to do great things. Amen. Amen. Okay, I can press play on the sermon again. So that's the first word, unexpected. The second word, Jesus' I am declaration. His statement is full of expectancy. This is the second key phrase, expectant. That is, Jesus' words here are full of life. They're full of promise. They're full of hope. Let's listen to what he says again. Verse 25, 26. I'm the resurrection and the life. And then comes what I'm calling the coin of promise. Just like a coin, one coin but two sides. Well, Jesus' promise here has kind of two parts, two components, two sides. Here's the head side. Verse 25, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And then the Tao side, verse 26, whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Now we'll take each in turn, the head side first, because this, these two promises, the head side, Tao side, incredible, and should inspire us, should move us to celebrate Christ. So the head side first, what is he saying? We're saying, if you believe in me, let's make it personal, you will live even though you'll die. Now, what is Jesus getting at here? What is he saying to us? Well, it seems that Jesus is teasing out the first part of his I am declaration. I am the resurrection. He's teasing out what it means for him to be our resurrection. Jesus is essentially saying to all those who truly love him, truly treasure him, truly trust him, that is New Testament faith, that we will, listen, flourish through death. We will blossom through death. One translation puts it, we will come to life after death. Of course, what's in view here is the great Christian hope. That every true blue fed income follower of Jesus will be resurrected to perfect health and exquisite vitality in a sin-free cosmos full of heart-aching beauty. This is the Christian hope. We're going to flourish through physical death. But also, this is not only the great Christian hope, resurrection, but also this is the unique hope of Christianity. It's unique. How so? Well, when you compare Christianity to other faiths, other religions, this becomes very clear, becomes prominent. For example, in Hinduism and Buddhism and other Eastern faiths and religions, they do believe in the afterlife. So tick for that, they believe in life after death. But... In these Eastern faiths, they don't believe that we will live on as persons. And they don't believe that we will live on in a material world. What they talk about is merging, being merged with the all-soul. Which, of course, will mean that we will lose our individuality. We'll lose our own unique identity. We won't be persons. And, of course, what's the implication? Well, the implication is that there won't be love relationships. Because you can only have love relationships when you have persons. And so that's Eastern faiths. What about Islam? 
Islam believes that we will live on as persons. So tick, they do believe in afterlife, tick, they believe that we will live on as persons, tick, tick, tick. But they don't believe that we will have physical bodies. They believe that we will be disembodied spirits and we will dwell in a spiritual, floaty, ethereal place like Casper the Friendly Ghost. But as human beings, what do we want? We want physicality, don't we? I mean, this is what it means to be human. It means to actually see a physical sunrise with physical eyes. It means to taste an exquisite dish with a physical tongue. It means to embrace someone, a loved one, a friend, a family member with physical arms. It means to smell the aroma of coffee with a physical nose. And this is what Jesus is promising in the age of resurrection, we're going to have our senses, all our senses made brand new. They're going to be going crazy like, in an awesome sense. And we will enjoy these senses, physical smell, sight, hearing, like never before, in a place free from separation, free from viruses, and free from death. This is the great Christian hope, and this is what makes the Christian hope unique, because it's physical. It's literal. We're going to be material in a renewed, resurrected, material world. Awesome. This is what Jesus means when he promises you're going to flourish physically and eternally through death. That's the head side. What about the towel side of the coin of promise? Jesus says, whoever lives by believing in me, and I pray that's all of you, that's all of us here today, that we live by believing in Jesus. This is the promise. We'll never die. Now, what is Jesus saying? Is he basically saying the same thing? No, I think what he's doing, he's teasing out the second part of his I am declaration. I'm the resurrection and the life. Like, I'm eternal life. Jesus is saying, if we treasure him, then we have eternal life today. Like, right here, right now. And those who enjoy this eternal life, he's saying, will experience physical death. But physical death won't really be death for them. It's not going to be a portal into death or misery, but a doorway into eternal festivity. I love what Paul says, again, in the great resurrection chapter of the Bible, 1 Corinthians 15, and I encourage you to read it in your own time. It's awesome. But he says right at the end of this chapter, he says, Oh, where is your victory, death? Oh, death, where is your sting? In other words, death will not mock the one who trusts in Jesus as the resurrection life. No, no, no. We will mock death because, as I just said, death will be a portal to eternal life and eternal love, eternal joyful festivity, not a doorway into eternal misery. And so, as it were, Christians don't really die because we've got the spirit of the resurrected, risen Christ in our lives. And this is why the New Testament talks about the believer's death as sleep, because it's just like sleep. Death has lost its fangs. Death has lost its teeth in the life of the believer. I love what D.L. Moody, the great 18th century evangelist, said about this. He said, someday... You'll read in the papers that Moody is dead. Don't believe a word of it. At that moment, and this will be true for all of those who trust in Christ, I shall be more alive than I am now. It's true. 
We're going to be more alive then than we are now. Why? Because we're going to be living then free from pain, free from arthritis, free from separation, free from brokenness and depression and misery and all the other things that hold us back and hold us down in this broken world. This is why Jesus says, if you come to me, if you believe, you're going to live. Live on. You're never going to die. What a glorious promise. This is why Jesus' I am declaration is full of hope and full of promise. Now, third word, real brief here, confronting. Confronting. Now, what do I mean here? Well, I don't mean confronting in a hostile, negative sense. I mean it in an up-close, personal sense. You see, right at the end of verse 26, Jesus, as the Son of God, the resurrection and the life, says something to Martha that he's saying to each of us today. Make it personal. He says this, do you believe this? That's the question. He's asking you today, do you believe this? I know your friend believes this. I know your relative believes this. Or your colleague believes this. Your dad believes this. Your son believes it. But do, do you believe this personally? Individually, Do you believe that I am who I say I am, the resurrection and the life? And of course, if you answer in the affirmative, if you say yes, yes, then this coin of promise is yours to enjoy both now and forever. But if you're unsure, or if you're saying no, then we need to heed Jesus' words of warning. We need to think about his caution. You see, a few chapters before chapter 11, Jesus says this in John chapter 5. He says, quote, Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice. He's talking about himself as the Messiah, as the resurrection and the life. They will hear my voice and come out. Now, that will be a display of great authority and power. Every single human who has ever lived down through the ages, human history, will hear the voice of King Jesus, the resurrection and the life. They will hear his voice and they will come out. The seas will give up their dead. Those who have had their ashes scattered, they will be re-knit and reformed and they will stand before this king on that day. What power, what majesty, what authority. Listen to what he goes on to say, verse 29. Those who have done what is good will rise to life. Meaning, those who believe in me and live that out by loving others and serving others, they will rise to life, what we've looked at in this message. But, he goes on to say, and those who have done what is evil will rise, but not to life, to be condemned, Jesus says. You see, There is a lot of evil in the world, but I think the greatest evil is not loving and trusting the one who has given us life. If you're there, he's given you life. And not only that, he gave up his life in death, costly death, in order to achieve and win for you and secure for you eternal life and resurrection existence. And yet if you deny him, reject him, if you just keep him at arm's length, that is a great crime. It's a great crime against the creator of the universe. And this is the great evil. All other evil flows out of this ultimate evil of unbelief, not loving, not treasuring, not following Jesus, the Son of God. And yet Jesus is not happy with this situation. This is why he's warning us, because he loves you. He loves us. He's saying, don't be condemned. Don't 
be condemned. Don't be unbelieving. Why would you give yourself this fate, this eternal destiny in hell, shut out from the presence of God, shut out from the presence of beauty? No, no, trust in me. If you come to me, I will receive you, says Jesus. I will accept you. I will embrace you. I will hold you close to myself. I will restore you. Because I came for you. I love you. I went to the cross for you to die for your sin. If you would have been the only person in the world, I would have done that because I treasure you. I love you. I want you to be my child, my son, my daughter. I want you to be mine. And so I plead with you, heed the voice of Jesus. Hear his voice because one day you will hear his voice. The dead will rise. But I'm praying that you would hear his voice today and come to life as you come to Christ and put your faith and trust in him as your personal resurrection and life. I'm going to pray for you. You know, church, we need to pray. As we saw and we heard two weeks ago when Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, in that passage he said, I must bring other sheep also. I must bring them into my fold. I must bring them into my family. We need to pray for those who have just said to Jesus, yes, I believe in you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. You are so good and you perform the ultimate miracle of saving people. People who were once dead in their sins, but now are alive in you. Lord, we thank you. We pray that you would encourage these people who have just given their lives to you. I pray that you would fill them with your spirit. Lord, that they would reach out to us as a church and say, I prayed. I have a relationship with Jesus. I trust that he is the resurrected one. I trust that he is my life. Lord, I praise you for Those of us, Lord God, who have already trusted in Jesus as our resurrection and the life, our good shepherd, and all the other wonderful things that we've seen in this series, Lord, I pray that you would keep us close to yourself, Lord. Keep us close to yourself. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for listening to the Parramatta Christian Church podcast. To hear other sermons or to find out more about our church, please visit our website at pcc.org.au.